3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders, past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning and welcome to 3CR Breakfast Summer Series, featuring some of our favourite conversations we've had during the year. We're now going to hear from Greta Thunberg, the 15-year-old Swedish activist who addressed the UN Plenary on Climate Change last weekend in Poland. My name is Greta Thunberg. I am 15 years old and I'm from Sweden. I speak on behalf of Climate Justice Now. Many people say that Sweden is just a small country and it doesn't matter what we do. But I've learned that you are never too small to make a difference. And if a few children can get headlines all over the world just by not going to school, then imagine what we could all do together if we really wanted to. But to do that, we have to speak clearly, no matter how uncomfortable that may be. You only speak of green, eternal economic growth because you are too scared of being unpopular. You only talk about moving forward with the same bad ideas that got us into this mess, even when the only sensible thing to do is pull the emergency brake. You are not mature enough to tell it like it is. Even that burden you leave to us children. But I don't care about being popular. I care about climate justice and a living planet. Our civilization is being sacrificed for the opportunity of a very small number of people to continue making enormous amounts of money. Our biosphere is being sacrificed so that rich people in countries like mine can live in luxury. It is the sufferings of the many which pay for the luxuries of the few. The year 2078, I will celebrate my 75th birthday. If I have children, maybe they will spend that day with me. Maybe they will ask me about you. Maybe they will ask why you didn't do anything while there still was time to act. You say you love your children above all else, and yet you are stealing their future in front of their very eyes. Until you start focusing on what needs to be done, rather than what is politically possible, there is no hope. We cannot solve a crisis without treating it as a crisis. We need to keep the fossil fuels in the ground, and we need to focus on equity. And if solutions within this system are so impossible to find, then maybe we should change the system itself. We have not come here to beg world leaders to care. 
You have ignored us in the past and you will ignore us again. We have run out of excuses and we are running out of time. We have come here to let you know that change is coming, whether you like it or not. The real power belongs to the people. Thank you. So that was Greta Thunberg, and that was a fantastic speech from a young person. And um, just, um, just say that, well, that um, speech we, we took from Democracy Now! Um, so thank you, Democracy Now! for allowing us to play that. I also think this is not to detract at all from the fantastic words that she said there, you know, the suffering of the many for the luxury of the few... You know, that if the system can't provide answers, perhaps we need to change the system. I love how, you know, for a 15-year-old, she was remarkably cynical. You know, we have not come here to beg. You've ignored us before, but you will ignore us again. I do think that it added metal to that speech, having such... She had a fantastic gravitas to her voice for a 15-year-old. You know, she was... is a brilliant speech. Mm. And um, I hope it rattles some cages. You know, I, 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 I'm, atten- I'm inclined to agree with Greta, that most likely people will shake their heads and politely applaud and do nothing, because that's what most of the time uh, politicians do uh, when asked to make seismic changes and recognise the severe imbalance that the current system uh, creates and upholds. And it's uh, as Greta rightly identified, it's, it's going to be the poor, uh, something that uh, we heard from Jeff Sparrow earlier today as well, that you know, the poor are going to be the people most affected by this rapid climate change. We are already seeing uh, Pacific nations uh, come together and talk about, you know, in Kirribilli and PNG and these, you know, th- these, are, the, these are the places where, that are going to be underwater first. That, that's the reality. Uh, I think, you know, in some regards, um, they're not the people that we need to be asking. I think that we need to be communicating with each other and... You know, I think that the speeches like this, I think it was an amazing speech. And I guess, you know, I'm not saying that we, we shouldn't keep trying to put pressure on, on governments and on the UN and, and places like that. But what we're talking about is a shift in, not, it's not just an envi- it's not an environmental shift. It's an economic shift in the way that things are produced, the way that we view um, the whole economy which reflect which um, reflects on the environment and i think that in order to do that we need to radically change the way that the system is operating and that you know it, it's difficult to ask the people that are you know the kind of you know police of that system to to do things differently and mm. you know i think uh, i i think that we need to have a whole kind of system change but it, it is possible to work within capitalism to get these kind of changes as well. I just think that, you know, it needs to be other people pushing that to a, a different degree than just asking a politician. So mm. it's it's very heartening to kind of see, you know, the um, youth kind of rising over the last um, few weeks. So. Yeah, it's fantastic. I mean, last week we spoke to Leo Cernogochevic, who said himself, you know, like... It's not going to change while the modus operandi is to use the environment as a profit machine. You know, mm. something Greta Thunberg 
touched on there as well. That's currently the way we look at the earth. We look at it as something to exploit and use. And as long as that's the attitude, the idea of... I I used a wonderful phrase. She said, you talk about green economic, uh, utopian green economic growth. You know, that's all you want to talk about, this idea that we can continue with the levels of consumption, continue with, with the levels of excess, conspicuous consumption and excess, you know, as our vaunted values within our society but we can't do that if we want to have a livable planet there isn't a you know there isn't it's interesting thing that i heard jacob gretch touching on on the radio a little while ago as well that fossil fuels you know are so uh potent and provide such a swift delivery of energy in their form you know the burning of oil or the burning of coal it's a very high yield energy and it props up uh, the military-industrial complex, because to to fire missiles and jets and tanks, you need these high-yield fuels. And one of the resistances he was saying to a to a shift to more sustainable forms of energy, things like geothermal energy and solar energy that that provide constant but smaller levels of energy, which are great for running communities, say, running wind turbines, running household electricity, not for firing missiles or powering jets. So there's going to have to be this transition from one style. You know, the, the links between our fuel and our fuel use and the type of products we make. You know, we, we need to start shifting this. And, you know, listening to Greta gives me um, some hope that the next generation will be well-equipped to make those changes. I think it, it's difficult because I think talking about climate change in some regards because it feels like you have to walk a bit of a fine line between saying, you know, kind of like, grabbing a person and shaking them and saying, do you not understand what's happening? Like, this is not a joke. We are seriously at the brink of a really huge disaster. And then, on the other hand, you know, trying to just gently um, give people a bit of information. And, you know, I think it's a, it's a really difficult thing because you don't want to be, you know, you, you described a thing about kind of cynical nature, what... I don't know what else people can feel, though, no matter what their age. Um, the impatience of youth is, I think, something that's really great about some of these people that are speaking out. But if you have read anything about what's happening with the climate, it's difficult not to just be cynical because you look at it and you would think, OK, well, something clearly needs to dramatically change. And then you see nothing happening and mm. nothing happening for decades now, you mm. know. We've known about We're talking about things. since the 1970s. Yeah, so we've known about things. Well, that's true, but I think over the last you know 20 or so years, we've seen a dramatic increase in knowledge uh, about what's happening and about ways to change things. And you know, we've seen there are mechanisms in order to transition to clean energy and things that we you know didn't necessarily have before. So there's there's a, a knowledge. And there's also a, a way to, that a we capacity. can change. Yeah, capacity to change. Hmm. Both, you know, and that's from really a capitalist kind of point of view as well. It's not necessarily just looking at, um, you know, the things we are talking about before, about changing the economic system or whatever. It's, it's actually saying you can transition to green jobs and green energy and all that kind of stuff. And still make bucket loads of money for the people who own the solar panels or the wind turbines. But in no way are we moving towards that. And, you know, we spoke um, about... Uh, we, we've spoken on the show about the kind of things from the Labor Party conference that was last weekend. And, and you know, that there will be gains made 
of the kind of current environmental policies. But still, those they're not going to do anything, really, on yeah. a fundamental level to be able to move towards something that will actually make change. Mm. Like yeah, law reform is going to be a slow reform. It may be effective over time, but it's not going to be quick enough uh, to make the changes that we need. But then I think, you know, something Jeff Sparrow was talking about earlier is a problem as well, you know, this this panic, you know, this uh, not panic, but, you know, the, the rightful concern about the, the rapidity of change and the need for seismic, dramatic responses does bring uh, authoritarian uh, responses into play. You know, that's the risk, you know. If you're saying that nothing's happening fast enough, there needs to be seismic change, you know, who do we empower to do that change? And, you know, we've, we've seen that in France, you know, where government's like, well, we're just going to have to raise fuel tax and all of you are going to have to deal with it. You that have to travel a long way, just, just ride your bike the, the 40 kilometres to work every day. Don't drive your car because you can't afford it. And we've said you can't afford it. It's not good for the environment. Buy some, don't buy bottled water. Ride your bike, change your light globes. You know, do you know what I mean? Like there's, um, yeah, I hope government can do something. <laughs> well, um, don't hold your breath. But I think that they are, yeah, there's certainly dangerous kind of things to put forward as an alternative. And yeah, I, I think it's true that someone has to fill that kind of um, political vacuum, I guess. But we are not moving anywhere near fast enough. And I guess that's what I was saying, that it is, it does feel like a fine line of feeling like we have this information that seems urgent that we want to share, but we don't want to alarm everyone. And I think part of that kind of, um, you know, what's happened, I think, over the last few years as well is that people have become aware and then deeply concerned about what they can do. And I think this speaks, you know, across the left as well. And then people went, oh, I don't know how to tackle this. This is way too big a problem. And then people went back to looking at individual responses and things like, the war on waste, and I think, you know, it's a, a good program, and it does, it has put some positive things forward, and it's not to say that those things can't have an impact, but they don't have an impact unless corporations are also doing something, and, you know, they do try to tackle that a little bit in season two of that show. So, you know, I think that it just, the, that individual kind of choice of things, it just made people feel like, okay, well, I, I'm doing something now. And so I guess if people feel like they're doing something and they're thinking about the environment, now it's about how do we have that conversation to say, well, we need to pressure governments to do to do what we're doing. To control and regulate business, 100 companies currently making 70% of the world's excess carbon. That's, that's, that's what the stats say. That's not pie-in-the-sky stats. I've looked that up. It is, it is the case, according to the UN, the recent UN special report. You're listening to 3CR Monday Breakfast. I think it's Christmas Eve. And stay tuned. So a new study by one of Australia's leading social researchers, Rebecca Huntley, suggests that Australian voters are keenly awaiting a government filled with politicians who will take the lead on a nationwide response to catastrophic climate change. This is unsurprising given the chorus of high-profile scientific voices such as David Attenborough and Brian Cox, who have given more dire warnings since the updated UN report on climate change was released in November of this year. With the federal coalition in glorious disarray, one can imagine the mood at last weekend's ALP National Conference was excited anticipation with the election of next year uh, seemingly Bill Shorten's to lose from the bumbling Scott Morrison. 
This was certainly the attitude of the Labor Environment Action Network, who recently said they will be pushing hard for a significant overhaul of Labor's environmental and energy policies early in the first term of a shortened Labor government. To discuss how successfully this message was brought to the National Conference, we're joined by the National Campaign Coordinator of the Labor Environment Action Network, or LEAN, Louise Crawford, who is fresh from the four-day conference in Adelaide last weekend. Good morning, Louise. Oh, good morning. Thanks for having me. So, Louise, a document distributed to delegates back in November suggested a federal Labor government would put a cap on carbon, remove, uh, move to 50% renewables in the next 11 years, and cut emissions by 45% of 2005 levels. But at the time, the Shadow Environment Minister, Minister and Leader of the Opposition Business, Tony Burke, poured cold water on those policies, saying they were incorrect due to an administrative error. Did you find the party power brokers more in unison with your network's position at last weekend's conference? Yeah, um... Well, some of what you said is not. It was it was more an administrative error, more around the environment boards. Um, yes, but it was what it was words, more semantics, not necessarily that the intent was not the same. So yes, when we were at the conference, um, both Bill Shorten and Tony Burke and many others got behind um, reforming uh, Australia's environment laws, which is a fantastic step forward. So, Louise, the phrase significant overhaul was used twice recently in articles published in The Guardian to describe mm. the aims of Lean with regards to Labor's national environmental policy. What are the mm. key, well, what were, if you're saying there's now agreement, what, what were these differences between Lean's demands, which come from grassroots Labor networks, me- members of, of, of uh, Labor branches, and the, those of the parliamentary party? What was the actual difference? It, it really wasn't far. So what we were asking for is, well, one, the laws are so weak that at this point in time they stop nothing. Um, we wanted an, um, an independent federal EPA to oversight to the regulation and to enforce it. And um, we were also interested in um, that second task, not so much that was more doing that independent oversight, proactive, um, protecting the environment, not just stepping in when it's too late. So we've kind of come to that same agreement that we want proactive um, protection of the environment and that was really sort of the sticking point. How we term it was just, it was just words more than anything else because the intent behind both of what the parliamentary party wanted and what we want is the same. We've seen from uh, like Victorian state government um, policy put forward over the last little while is kind of a, you know, I think quite a progressive statement, particularly, you know, around um, solar panels, you know, yeah. that um, across, you know, for, for almost every home, you know, in, in essence. And, you know, part of that, the solar panel um, on housing was something that um, Bill Shorten mentioned at the conference. Um, do you think that the state Labor government is being able to push federally the Labor Party to the left on some of these issues? I think there's been lots of people agitating constantly towards the left. But um, I have to say, I think, I I personally think that once someone's done it, it's a much easier idea to sell to the public. So I think Dan Andrews has done an amazing job of, of, you know, putting putting that line in the sand publicly and saying, we support renewables, we know we have to get our emissions down. And so therefore, I think, you know, Labor's not afraid to take up good policy where it sees it, both, you know, wherever, if it comes to the states first or the feds first. So I think... Labor as a community in terms of how they think about addressing climate change, it's just, it's, it's all kind of working together. And, you know, Jay Weatherall was kind of the man who actually started that first kind of policy, really. 
There was obviously uh, some interruption from environmental activists uh, during uh, one of Bill Shorten's addresses to the conference uh, last weekend. What's Lean's position on direct action as a tool uh, to push governments to make, you know, significant... These changes, you know, you're saying that Labor will pick up good policy when it sees it, but there is a lot of interests that are attempting to be balanced here, and we have seen slow movement uh, nationally in, in the environmental space as we balance the interests of the, of the coal lobby and other fossil fuels, miners, which is the backbone uh, of our economy. You know, how, how much can Labor really do um, as it balances those interests? And what's your position on on direct action as a tool? Look, I think there's room for protesting or direct action um, in a democracy. I think that's that's fair enough and there's different ways, you know, people can do it. But from what we work as in Lean, and this is where we think it's a more effective way, this is our our sort of um, the whole philosophy behind Lean, is to work within the party, the party that can form government. Because yelling from outside the tent, I think, can only get you uh, so far, and it can become simplistic when you just say, we want, you know, one simple sentence. It's unfortunately the reality of forming government and, and dealing with different people and different groups. It's, you know, creating policy and implementing it is hard. But it's, I, I think you have to give a lot more credit to politicians than often the community does. And so we work quite, you know, quietly within the party to actually go, okay, so how do we bring all this together? And, and I think, so I think there's a room for direct action, but I think there also needs to be an acknowledgement from people um, participating in direct action that, unfortunately, it's never as simple as as everyone would wish it to be. Um, I'm on local council now, so I'm making decisions, and I see how it's you know it's shades of grey when it comes to decision making. And I'd love people to go, yeah, we could just say something, and I'd love to have a silver bullet decision. But actually, being in government and actually making things change is, is um, a much more complex process. And being able to bring everyone together and, and, and deliver, um, I think there needs to be more credit given to being that ability to do that. I think that, yeah, it, is, it can be difficult to form, you know, large policy around the environment or whatever that issue may be. And I think be, yeah. one of the things that the... Um, well, what Jackson Razor protesters were talking about was the uh, Adani mine. And I think... You know, that can be um, quite a simple yes or no um, support from, uh, you know, the government or a potential Labor government. And, you know, I think that supporting the Adani mine seems to be in contradiction to some of the policy and put forward around environmental um, improvement yeah, so in environmental policy, though. So Labor's not actually in support of it. it they're only in support if it, it stacks up environmentally. Um, and at this point, we're not in government to test all of that. So I don't, it's not a simple yes or no. There's a lot of complexity around all sorts of legal minefields. And so Labor's actually not... Um, various people have come out against it. Um, so they're asking something that I think is not straightforward. Um, I, think, I think the bigger picture, and this is the thing that we've been interested in, it, that's one mine. There's a lot of mines that could open up. So we're looking... What, what we saw is the bigger picture... Um, Rather than doing like doing spot fires, we wanted to reform the laws so that environmental, um, well not sustainability, but actually good environment outcomes have to be at the forefront. Because currently the laws don't even mention climate change, so that's not a legal factor that you can stop a mine or stop a project on. So we were looking at the bigger picture: how do we reform the laws so that the better environmental environmental outcomes are reached? 
And so that's what we took the big picture, like this is, this is one project. There could be lots of other projects that maybe shouldn't go ahead in the future depending on what kind of impacts they'll have. So that's the kind of view we've taken. And I, and I wish it was that simple um, for, for anyone, but it, it, it isn't. And, and that's the bit that I get um, dismayed on that people don't acknowledge. Mm. Sometimes things are harder than they seem. Or there's, there's legal minefields that, that people won't acknowledge. They just keep saying no and, you know, again, as I said, I wish there was a silver bullet solution to every problem, but there isn't. Mm. It does seem, though, if people are calling for leadership, that something like saying we're not going to open new coal-powered, coal-fired power stations could be a good way to demonstrate that leadership. There is, you know, a number of different options in the marketplace now. You know, we've seen Spain and Germany uh, harness solar power. You know, there's wind power. This is a country where we could be investing heavily in those areas, and it seems like that is... I understand what you're saying about silver bullets and things need to take many things into account, but also... in, in in response to your thing that, you know, we can't make policy on single sentences, uh, we, we have seen that, you know, the policy of stop the boats, you know, turning back boats at sea, for, you know, filled with vulnerable people, that does seem like policy on a, sing- on a single, sadly popular sentence in the Australian public. Well, not, it, it, but that was part of a package of, of areas. It was, not, it was not a standalone policy. It was part of a whole different thing that the, the, um, at the last conference we adopted. So that's what I'm, so again, you can't say that it's a single sentence policy because it's actually not. It's part of the whole thing that we're designed. Yeah, but the whole and package again, was aiming to stop the boats, you know, the offshore processing, the boat turnbacks, you know, the, 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 the idea, and, you know, that, obviously that was coalition policy that, that Labor yeah. then, uh, you know, doubled down on. But that, but that does seem to be the overlying, uh, you know, at the moment you could argue that, uh, what little energy and environmental policy the, the, the Liberals have seems to be around cost, seems to be about bringing costs down you know, by any means necessary. I'm not sure whether that's the leadership that the Australian people are looking for in that space, but I do think that while there are complexities within any uh, policy packages, often it is you know, a single goal that, that is uniting people and getting them inspired uh, to, to vote for a party. Uh, I wonder yeah, whether, totally. whether there was any change to uh, Labor's commitment to offshore processing during the conference that you heard. So that's not my kettle of fish, and I really wouldn't want to say anything that, you know what I mean? I, I, I can't speak um, from a particularly informed place on that, so I, I'd rather not. Well, to, bring it, environmentally. to bring it back to your area of interest, you've talked yeah. about creating a federal uh, EPA or, or something yeah. with a bit more teeth. Here in Victoria, we've seen a lot of criticism of the EPA as being quite toothless. You know, we've seen the, the, the site in Faulkner that was previously used uh, to make Agent, Agent Orange being uh, green-lighted for development. We're also seeing the, the former defence site in Maribyrnong green-lighted for a very loud, large uh, housing development. I understand that population is an issue, but, you know, how, how are we going to ensure that a federal uh, EPA actually has the tools at its disposal to, to, to stop uh, dangerous... Well, development or, or to stop, uh, you know, unwanted logging or, to, you know, to stop the destruction yeah. of the environment? Um, so I'm not a policy wonk and I couldn't give you the details. That's actually, the, that's the devil's in the details. So please be assured that Lean will continue to work within Labor as the federal EPA comes online around, you know, its um, responsibilities and having those teeth and being fully resourced and being science-driven and all of those things. At this point in time, obviously, we've just, we've just taken the first step. And this is where we need all the um, various um, environmental groups and NGOs to come and be part of that process as they develop it. Because it is. It's going to be 
we need we need these things to change, and, and I feel sure that, that as part of the process, it will definitely have peace and working together to get that. But I couldn't give you details at this point because simply, you know, that we're just too early at this stage. We've got commitments to the to the EPA and to reforming the laws. There's been a lot of work done by Chifley, by lots of different people around specifically what to do, and now it's bringing that all together. Over the last kind of couple of weeks, we've seen you know, quite young activists um, taking to the streets, we, you know, climate action um, by high school students and some primary school students in Australia. And we even, um, there's a 15-year-old, Greta Thunberg, who was um, giving a speech last week to the UN climate negotiations in Poland. This is a kind of, I think, you know, um, you know leadership on, on uh, environmental issues that the world is kind of crying out for. Um, you know, do you think that, you know, uh, people at the conference, were they inspired by some of these um, young people taking action? Oh, definitely. I mean, here in Australia, of course. I got involved in climate change. I turned with Al Gore a number of years ago because I was so worried about it. And they said that's how they're feeling. They want change. But I decided to get involved and be part of the change. And that, that's what they're doing. And I think it's a wonderful thing. And climate change, that is where labor's really strong. We are prepared to do the work to implement the policy, to bring down our emissions, and, you know, we've been floundering under a government that's still in denial. And that's a scary place for me and for young people who are going to inherit the worst of the problems, you know. And, and so I totally think it's, it's fantastic. And that's, and that's why, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm with labor to get this stuff done, to make it happen. Um, and so, yeah, I think there's actually, it's a fantastic. I know lots of young people, myself in my area, who attended, and it's great. Mm. They're saying, this is, we want action. Louise, um, we'll pretty much leave it there. I'm just curious, though, you've just attended the conference last weekend. Uh, mm-hmm. To your mind, what were the key moments? You know, what are you taking away from the conference? What do you think will be uh, the, the most meaningful, or, you know, to you, yeah, what, what were the key moments of the conference for you? Oh, look, there's nothing like when you've been campaigning for 18 months um, to hear the leader of the party commit to what you've been asking for. So that immediate moment when Bill did that in his speech was fantastic. Um, the, the other big outcome is, so this is, this is one of my passions personally, people see the headlines in politics and, you, and you'll hear a lot of negative stuff, but you never meet the great people who volunteer behind the scenes. The great moment is meeting all those people and seeing those people that are working day in, day out, and a lot of them volunteers to make change in Australia in whatever area they're passionate about. And that's the bit you never see, and, and I wish it was people had more access to that, could could understand the passion of some of these people have been in the party 40 years and they turn up again and again and, and they do the work and they're, and they're quietly, you know, that's what's what the party's about. It's not just the headlines. It's not just all the gotcha moments that the press look for. It's it's the people who are committed to making Australia a better place, not just for themselves, but for others. Mm. You know, like housing policy, we've got better housing policy as well, which really excited me, because in my area we see a lot of homelessness. And, yeah, so I guess... So I'm going to say it's, it's, it's the grassroots. It's meeting the people. That was the course and the big highlight for me, other than, of course getting what we wanted in our environmental law reform campaign. Mm. Yeah, it's good to hear that you're going to be uh, looking through the finer detail of environmental protection through the, the oh, arm yeah. of the law. And um, good luck with Lean's work in the coming year, Louise. Thanks for, thanks for joining us on 3CR. Yeah, thank you very much.
very much for your time. That was Louise Crawford giving us a update on what happened last week with the Labor Party conference. Next, we're going to play a song, and it is by little-known American artist Michael Jackson, formerly of the band Jackson 5, and with his song Man in the Mirror. Now, Lizzie O'Shea is a lawyer, a broadcaster, and a writer. Uh, She's mainly worked in human rights with her law work, and she's publishing a book next year with Verso Press about the politics and history of digital technology. Lizzie, thanks for joining us this morning. Thanks so much for having me on. So, Lizzie, tell us a bit about the research you've been doing. What does the future hold when it comes to digital technology? Well, I think if we were listening to some of the big titans of the tech industry, we would assume everything was going swimmingly, uh, that our future is going to be delivered by highly optimised humans in partnership with digital technology. But I think the reality for lots of people is that uh, digital technology has become a source of anxiety or fear that they're being watched either by the government or by corporations who want to sell them things and want to track every aspect of their behaviour. And also it's presided over a transformation of our uh, working lives so that more of our life is spent working and less of our lives spent doing things that we enjoy. And I wanted to look at that and wonder whether it was possible to see alternatives to this kind of future. And I do think actually digital technology holds immense promise for solving some of the most difficult problems of our age, like climate change, for example, or mass wealth inequality. Uh, But really, it's only if we examine who holds the power in how technology is developed that we're going to be able to reclaim that future. And I think we really need to look at um, both industry and government and figure out how we can uh, wrest the power of technological development away from those two poles of attraction. And that's essentially what my book is about. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested about that intersection of business and government and technology and, be- and people. I mean, we hear a lot about, you know, green energy and the government's role in that. We hear Elon Musk, you know, flying around the world in his super rockets, saving the world. And we hear about Amazon dr- delivery drones and what that means for working people. But could you expand a little on what some of, you know, what the titans of business and government are proposing and what that means, what that could mean in everyday people's lives? Well, I think one of the best ways to look at this actually is through the idea of surveillance. Because when we think of surveillance in digital technology, we often think of um, Edward Snowden or the government controlling, um, you know, flows of information and trying to unencrypt them uh, to make sure they had access to them at will. But actually, none of the states capacity to surveillance citizens would really be possible if it wasn't for uh, technology capitalism, you know, uh, various companies that uh, provide platforms for us or provide the infrastructure for us to communicate online uh, didn't also participate in that surveillance industry. So that takes the form of uh, every time you visit a website, people track what you do, um, your devices talk to each other in ways that you might not know, um, they, the companies collect data and they hold it about you. And then they work in partnership with government to surveil you. So the capacity of both the state and the industry work in partnership to control the civilian population. And that's not a 
conspiracy theory. That's what they talk about doing. They want to have control of markets and they want to have control of population. So they work together in partnership in those sorts of ways. And I think that's something that's had a long tradition in left-wing thought, that, that essentially that civil government is an organised voice of the bourgeoisie, that it will do the work of industry. And I think when leftists talk about that, sometimes it's seen as something of a conspiracy theory. You know, we have democratic states that are elected. It's not as though they just represent business. They also represent citizens. But I think you can see that in surveillance and you can see that in all sorts of other industries. Why is it that, for example, Elon Musk is launching a rocket and is heralded as this great innovator when, in fact, he's standing on the shoulders of, of decades of government investment in space technology and government investment in uh, infrastructure that allows him to launch his rockets? We're seeing the privatisation of what was originally public research heralded as innovative developments in technology. And I really think we shouldn't settle for that. We should aspire to have much greater and much more interesting innovations that benefit uh, humanity and are kept in the public space rather than privatising uh, research that might have already happened and claiming it as the new victory of, of innovators of the 21st century. But you touched on it yourself there as well, that governments are working in collaboration with uh, technology giants to surveil us and collect our data. Uh, when yeah. I, I see the new Apple advertisements on TV with their face ID, their advertising, and all I think of is police pointing a phone at a suspect and unlocking it. You know, like yeah. it's, um, I, I, I worry about these, these intersections. How do we continue to hold government to account to make sure they're not, um, muddling about in our business? Absolutely. So there's a couple of ways I think we can do that. We can obviously agitate against uh, oppressive forms of legislation. And there's currently a biometric um, bill, uh, a bill for biometric monitoring that's before um, the federal government that will create a centralised repository for exactly what you described, things like Face ID. Um, but I also think we also need to look at people who are making that technology. So you will have seen probably, or your listeners will have also may have been following that in the United States in recent months, we've seen technology workers stand up uh, and resist in some of these companies that traditionally haven't been associated with radicalism. So workers in, in companies like Google and Microsoft have said, we don't want to actually contract with uh, the, um, the Department of Defense to build drones that recognize their subjects better so that they can kill them. You know, that's, I think, an incredible development that we've seen. Very small numbers of workers having an enormous impact on the defense industry. And so one thing I think we can do is support them and encourage unionism and, and uh, keep alive those traditions of worker organising because that has an immense capacity, I think, to influence this development and work out how we can also participate in that, whether that might be doing sympathetic things with them, um, you know, having union sign messages of support, but also looking at how we can agitate in our own workplaces around consumption of technology. Salesforce, for example, a consumer um, database management system, mm. is experiencing huge blowback for uh, participating in contracts with various defence entities. Mm. I think that's something that you could translate around the world. It could have the potential to be a global movement. There's multiple points of intersection into some of these debates, and of course one of the key things we need to do is try and learn about them and not just assume that they're monolithic, horrendous kind of developments that are unstoppable, but actually they're happening in the here and now. We've got the capacity to influence them. We should try and figure out ways to do that. Yeah, that's really interesting. You know, we were talking to Sleeping Giants Oz or a representative from that organisation last week about the efforts to stop hate speech through consumer activism. But that's an interesting thing you touch on with different elements of the supply chain in the ever-growing military-industrial complex with workers standing up and maybe demanding change. Right back at the start of what you were saying there, though, you mentioned a bill that may be coming uh, before Parliament that uh, will resist the create 
the creation of a database around uh, face IDs? Or, you know, is, is, yeah. is this around the new form of centralised ID cards that they're going to get people uh, to carry? Or? So it's quite a complex bill, but it's um, it's got a couple of interesting components. But there's essentially a move to try and centralise a repository of biometric information. So that includes facial ID, but other things like fingerprinting. Uh, and uh, there's, a, there's a, I mean, if people are interested, there's a fantastic submission that was put together by some of my friends in the Privacy Foundation, which you can read online, which goes through it uh, pretty categorically as to why it's problematic. Mm-hmm. But you can um, imagine the kind of features that exist. It's about uh, states having the capacity to share with each other biometric information. So when I say biometric, I mean things that are indelible about your human self that um, can be stored in electronic format. So that might be face ID, it might be um, fingerprinting. But there's all sorts of developments in biometric profiling that are quite interesting, including measuring your gait, your voice, uh, the way you type even can be uh, measured and tracked. So there's a lot of scope for greater research and capacity for the state in particular to surveil you and, and obviously as that uh, when we were talking about the partnership between business and state you can see how that integrates itself into everyday life through industry as well because you know there is this capacity now to pay for things using your face ID you can unlock your Apple phone obviously with your face as you were describing before so as those things are integrated into our daily life as part of business you can see how then it becomes a source of power also for government uh, if they're able to, to collect and centralise these kinds of databases so there's a, there's a bill to propose to do that it's, it's and it's the end of the wedge. I think it's about starting that process of sharing and giving the, the uh, state agencies the capacity to do that. But I think that's why it's really important to resist it and uh, to look at what kinds of safeguards they're talking about putting in place for misuse, uh, but also to avoid large data repositories mm. for this kind of material if we don't need them. Uh, I think when it comes to state surveillance and uh, uh, national security, we should always be asking why agencies need more power. They've got immense powers already. They don't use them all the time. Uh, they often see these kinds of complex areas as a reason and and an opportunity for capturing uh, more data and power about citizens and we should resist that and ask always why and and not just blindly assume the justification is valid. Well, we saw the public response even to the My Health initiative. Um, You know, I think people are a little suspicious about these centralised repositories of their own information, even when they're uh, presented in a way that, oh, it's good for you, it's for your health. And what you're describing with um, monitoring people's keystrokes or the way that they walk, that's uh, some pretty frightening stuff. Absolutely. What I would say about my health record is that I think it shows that people do care about their privacy. Mm. People love to talk, commentators love to talk about how Australians don't really care about what's known about them. They're not really fussed because they've not done anything bad for terrorists that need to be concerned. In fact, what my health record shows is that people really are worried about their privacy. They want governments to design systems that are properly uh, respectful of their individual space and their data online. Mm. And we should uh, make sure we appeal to that later on to say that actually privacy is a mainstream concern. People have legitimate, sophisticated understanding of what these systems are and they're trying to resist them. So we should we should listen to that and not just ride roughshod and assume that they're, they're silly or meaningless concerns. They're not. And that's something I think that's really been powerful about my health record. It's ring, rung a bunch of concessions now about it. And I think that's a fantastic result. We want to see more of that and, and resist this idea that people are just sheep who don't really care about these things. They do. 
Yeah, Julian Burnside, we were talking to a few months ago, and he said, for all this talk about people not caring about privacy, most people still close their curtains in the evening, to which I completely exactly. agree. And I yeah. think it's also, for all the destigmatization around personal health issues, you know, this week is uh, National Overdose Awareness Week, and the stigma that remains around things like drug and alcohol treatment, mental health, I mean, these are things that people uh, who have tenuous employment or even secure employment do not want in the public sphere because of the stigma that remains. I heard a PhD student um, in the UK talking about putting QR codes onto homeless people uh, to, to combat the lack of cash in the community. People would, you know, people would be able to donate using a smartphone app to a homeless person, but first they'd be able to scan that homeless person and make sure that homeless person had a good record, and it would be opt-in for these good homeless people to be able to put their records online. Just how, just, it just gives, kind of reflects how far down this Orwellian rabbit hole we are that that's being treated as something good for those living on the streets. Oh, my God. Yes. I mean, I also saw a report the other day of a congressman or some representative in the U.S. suggesting that we put microchip people who are on parole for similar kinds of reasons. Mm. Yeah, I think there is this view as well. And one of the things I want to talk about when I'm speaking at, at NIBS on Tuesday at the New International Bookshop is that uh, there's a view that if we apply technology to some of these social problems that we can fix them as though uh, having some kind of pedigree for homeless people that you can track will therefore mean that you can feel more comfortable about donating heading to them, while mm. leaving intact the system that allows people mm. to become homeless in the first place, while saying that technology could be deployed for accountability when it comes to homelessness as opposed to accountability when it comes to uh, the payment of tax by corporations or politicians who make decisions. Like It seems absolutely mad to me that we would apply technology to a problem like that in this way mm. and expect it to be solved. Why wouldn't we be using technology to try and uh, work out where there's uh, resources for people to live, why um, certain houses have remained empty for so long and why uh, why people are homeless at the same time, why there's a problem with our public spending initiatives that allow uh, tax incentives for people to keep homes empty rather than uh, occupy them with people and uh, take mm. pressure off rent. Mm. But there's all sorts of ways in which technology could be deployed to, to solve the problem of homelessness, I think, and that's the first one that I've come up with off for the top of my head at 7.30 on a Monday morning. I'm sure I could come up with others. The point being, the idea that technology is used for accountability and policing and uh, that we throw technology at problems as they exist and they'll be solved um, when they're quite sophisticated social and political ones, I think is a huge mistake. But it reflects the tendency towards utopianism that we see right throughout our politics, our, our public commentary and our cultural uh, understanding of our particular moment. And I think we need to resist it. Utopianism has a long history of, um, of, of uh, manifestations throughout the last 200 years in terms of coming to terms with the, the problems of capitalism. And I think it's got some real capacity for uh, to be to think, help us think about what our liberation might look like, but we have to be very careful how it's used because it can also become blind and uh, rather um, uh, thoughtless uh, in relation to the underlying trends that give rise to problems like homelessness or climate change or wealth inequality. Uh, those are political problems. Technology can contribute to solving them, for sure, but unless we come to grips with why they exist as a function of politics and society, the technology is going to be a salve. It's going to be probably something worse than a salve at times as well. It's going to disguise the true nature of the problem, mm. and, and we should be really careful about that. So part of my book as well is to track like this idea of technological utopianism to work out what its usefulness is in our, in our current moment and uh, to discard some of the ways in which it's been deeply dysfunctional 
original and uh, empowered the worst aspects of society and the worst people in society rather than uh, doing the opposite, which is what it should do. Lizzie, hi, uh, Layla here. Um, I'm right there with you all the way through. Totally, totally, totally agree with your perspective. Um, it's something that I've been, you know, pretty concerned with, like the last few years, just feeling myself on this information and seeing where our society is headed. Um, is there anything outside of direct action, like that we can, that, that will actually change this course of history? Because for me, the only thing that I can see that's any gonna, gonna make any kind of tangible difference is like turning Luddite on the machines. Oh, yeah, that's so interesting because I actually do talk about the Luddites in the book as well because I'm a big fan of the Luddites and I think they've been uh, grossly misrepresented throughout history. Um, it, I think it's very interesting because the Luddites were essentially a form of labour radicalism. They were not um, uh, uh, opposed to technology per se, but they used uh, the tools that were available to them, which was machine breaking, to demand a better uh, work experience in their daily lives because they resisted um, the idea that artisan work should be discarded for mindless labour in factories, which is think is a really interesting comparison with our current moment. Uh, I think there's lots of potential for change and uh, you know I, I felt the same way as you really frightened about the prospects of the future and feeling like uh, the powers that be are so incredibly entrenched and um, difficult to displace that the, the future that you want to see is almost so difficult and remote you can't imagine even building it from the that bottom up but I actually think that the current moment we find ourselves is kind of quivering with potential in sorts, all sorts of ways like apart from obviously late Labor activism, like I've talked about, supporting workers who are in the technology industry and, and across industries because it's not even just coders that are important in the technology industry. It's all sorts of people who also facilitate their work, including the people who open and close their buildings and clean them and all sorts of things. So there's all sorts of ways in which labor intersects with technology in interesting ways. I think there's also things you can do as a kind of activist and um somebody who uses technology for these purposes. We can resist using platforms like Facebook. We can try and get off them and use other ones. We can try and encourage people to think about the devices that they use and the programs that they use and encourage things like open free source software because that has its own radical history, which I think is quite interesting, of people coming together, building things together and um, creating products that are safer and and aimed to service the user rather than the company. Uh, We can can talk about using those and and mainstreaming their use within uh, less activist movements, as well as, of course, like protesting and those kinds of things too. I mean, there's plenty of different options, and I think uh, all of these inter- intersect with each other in all sorts of differing ways, and hopefully I'll, I'll give you some more detail in the book when I've, when it's published and it comes out next year. Um, but, I, yeah, I think there's, there's got to be more than protest, to be honest, uh, and I'm hoping that we can start a conversation about what that might look like. Um, but, yeah, unionism, I think, is one. Uh, being involved in watching how our legislators work is another, uh, as well as, yeah, generalised protest testing resistance and raising awareness and having these discussions in left-wing movements that had technologies a left issue that we need to come to terms with rather than something that's for um, civil libertarians to, to bother mm. with or computer nerds to trouble themselves with. That's, that's not, not a good enough answer anymore, I don't think. Hey, Lizzie, thanks so much for joining us on a Monday morning. I know you're flat out and um, looking forward to reading the book when it comes out. Thank you so much for having me on. Cheers. Listening to summer programming on 3CR. The regular programming team is taking a break. So we're bringing you highlights from current affairs programs on 3CR. So we have a bit of a Christmas special here at 3CR Community Radio where we've poached one of our direct competitors for a morning of cross community <laughs> radio contamination. 
We are joined on the phone by Jeff Sparrow, one-third of the Triple R Breakfast team, well-known political rascal and proud author of the recently published Trigger Warnings, Political Correctness and the Rise of the Right. And he's here to talk about that book. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, and it's a mission, not a competition. <laughs> well said. Uh, so the book Trigger Warnings was released, I think, in September of this year, and it traces, like that, yeah. Yeah, traces the history of political correctness in the West, looking most closely at Australia and the USA. Jeff, why do you think political correctness has been such fertile ground for staging support for right-wing demagogues and political parties in recent times? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot to unpick there, but I think one of the reasons is simply because it's a term that obscures the debate, and I think that's something that we've seen uh, very clearly in all of the discussions about um, censorship and free speech in Australia and elsewhere these days, that, that the whole framework in which the argument is had now is so um, confused that it's very difficult to come to a sensible position. So okay, I'll give you one example that um, I, I was thinking about a lot, that you probably have heard various comedians talking about how they'll no longer play university campuses. You know, Jerry Seinfeld's got a whole bit about this. That, that he, he won't do gigs at, at colleges in the US anymore because there's too much censorship because of all the political correctness. There's no freedom of speech anymore. And um, he's not the only one who says that, but there's a whole cohort of comedians who are about the same age and... Um, and stature who make that claim. It's just that as soon as you drill down on what they're actually talking about, what they generally mean is not that they've been, you know, banned by the cops from, you know, speaking on the campus or anything like that. What they mean is now when they do a show and they tell jokes that previously they've, you know, been able to have as a staple of their set, if they make homophobic or sexist jokes, whereas previously everyone would have merely applauded, now they'll face a situation where people might turn their backs, or they might walk out, or they might heckle, or whatever. And this is the thing that they describe as um, as censorship. But as soon as you think about it, what they're actually describing is freedom of speech. What they're actually talking about is a situation where people who previously would have been silenced or excluded are now speaking up and saying, actually, I don't find homophobia to be funny or I don't mm. find racism to be sexist to be funny. But in the discussion that's had in the Australian media that's always talked about as a form of censorship, so we have this bizarre reversal of reality and I think the term political correctness has played um, a tremendous role in allowing the right to do that. So we no longer, when we're talking about censorship in Australia, the thing that comes to mind is not, say... I don't know, the ASIO laws, where you can get, you know, 20-plus years in jail for possessing certain books, you know. Now, now whatever you think about um, the need for such laws, that is censorship, censorship in a kind of classical form. Instead, however, the term political correctness means that um, the focus is always on this kind of culture wars stuff happening at universities in a way that, you know, really obscures what's happening. That was a very long... Mm. <laughs> and do you think, Jeff, that that is from perhaps people that are not part of like a political kind of um, scene themselves, and so they're kind of shocked of that kind of um, response? You know, I remember reading about Allen Ginsberg going to Jack Kerouac um, readings and heckling him because of his support for the war and things. It's not like it's never happened, but these are, you know, perhaps they expected that kind of the scene that they were involved in. But comedians that are, you know, a bit apolitical, like. Um, 
Seinfeld or whatever, that they, they think that they should be able to go and just make their jokes without kind of ridicule or... Yeah, I mean, certainly one of the things that we have seen is uh, you know, a, a democratising of discourse, to, at least to a certain degree. Now, you don't want to overstate that the media is still massively centralised and, and, and controlled, but people do have um, avenues in which they're able to present ideas now, even if it's a form in, uh, of, of social media or whatever. It's quite uncomfortable for, for certain people who are accustomed to, you know... Um, being the ones who speak while everyone else listens, to be in a situation where other people are speaking. And, you know, well, you work in um, radio and anyone who is in, in the media now knows that, you know, if you say something offensive or whatever, you will get pushback from people. Now, and often that pushback is not very useful, often kind of hurtful or, or, or whatever, but just to claim that that is a form of censorship... Mm. It's just crazy to me. It's almost it's almost the definition of free speech. Yeah, that other right. people will be able to respond to the things that you say. But again, I think the peculiar culture war form in which these debates about political correctness have taken place has meant that it's very difficult to discuss these things in any sensible way. Yeah, it's certainly this idea of who speaks and when is definitely something that your book uh, covers quite extensively. You know, you talk about this tendency, particularly on the left, to move to you know from a kind of mass mobilisation, direct politics to a, a delegated politics or a politics that certainly privileges kind of a, an educated elite as the people who should be speaking about issues and making decisions about issues, and rejects kind of mass movements as that of a kind of untrustworthy form of mob rule. Um, you know, how do you see these approaches in politics being reflected in current events, particularly media coverage of current events, like the yellow vests in France or the hand-wringing over Brexit? You know, we see a lot of dismissal of uh, mass movement or mass uh, un uh, unrest, I suppose, as just, you know, misinformed, uneducated, problematic, put it all in the too-hard basket and the bad politics basket. Yes, uh, I fear I'm probably going to give enough a quite long-winded answer in response to, to that, but again, there's a lot to kind of unpick um, there. So you think about the sort of debates about censorship in Australia in the 70s um, and through into the early 80s, people forget that through much of that period, the doyens of the Australian right, whether it was, you know, Ronald Reagan in America or, you know, the various Liberal Party people in Australia were... These days, the right likes to present itself as being unabashedly on the side of free speech. But, of course, you know, Ronald Reagan campaigned explicitly for more censorship. Like, he explicitly said, we need greater censorship to stop, you know, the pornography that's polluting our culture. So, in that period, uh, the left that came out of the 60s and 70s was, as you say, committed to what I call direct politics. That is, you know, organising for the grass, from the grassroots participatory um, democracy aimed at affecting um, some kind of structural change on a grand scale. And when that's your project, uh, you almost necessarily come up against the power of the state, which almost necessarily means that you come into conflict um, with uh, various kinds of censorship and your movement becomes almost necessarily uh, a movement for broadening you know, um, broadening the base of, of, of kind of access to communications and, and, and so on and so forth. So through that period, the idea that the left 
with a dense free speech would have seemed nonsensical. Mm. The right-wing critique back then was the left is, you know, is breaking down the traditional, you know, the traditional repressions on allowing sex and um, violence into the, into the public sphere. That, that weird reversal taking place is connected to this notion of delegated politics, I think, which uh, came over the left in the late 70s, early 1980s, when as the kind of mass movement from the 60s died away, there increasingly became a political tendency that saw that political change was something that was affected by um, a small number of um, intellectuals or people with some sort of position in, in NGOs or the, um, or the universities um, on behalf of ordinary people, so hence delegated part. Know that, and very often that would entail using some kind of um, state function or semi-state organisation to 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 implement not a structural change, but very often a symbolic kind of change. And what and that made it far easier for the right to say, look, the left is engaged in censorship of uh, of um, uh, of ideas that it doesn't like. They have to put that in perspective, of course. I mean, even today. Anyone who's been at a university knows that universities are major corporations. The kinds of censorship that happens at the university are overwhelmingly, you know, the thing that's most likely to get you to lose your job in the university is not that you use the wrong gender pronoun. You're most likely to lose your job if you talk about joining a trade union. <laughs> but mm. nevertheless, the, the kind of the shift from direct to delegated politics makes that accusation that the left is engaged in sort of top-down censorship a bit more easier a bit easier to kind of um, uh, to kind of put forward, and just to get to the, the nub of your uh, uh, of your question, I think that the the reliance on delegated politics has evolved in such a way that there are increasingly people on the left who see the role of the left first and foremost to keep an eye on the masses and ensure, ensure that the masses don't basically fuck things up. You know, <laughs> you know what I mean? The, the idea is. Um, that rather than the 60s, direct politics, the people were seen as the source of political agency. Mm. I think by about the 2000s, we've moved from delegated politics to something I call smoke politics, where increasingly the, 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 the basis of political agency is an idea that the masses themselves are the problem, that they don't understand our clever ideas for changing the world, that they're innately sexist, racist, homophobic, transphobic, and therefore what we need to do, first and foremost is stop them going or expressing themselves because if they do, they will invariably, you know, push society to the right. And so I think now, whereas once upon a time that the left's instinctive reaction to kind of any, you know, um, mobilisation of the streets would have been support, even if there were problematic elements of that, I think increasingly we've seen um, a tendency where people react with kind of utter horror at the notion that ordinary people might be consulted or might mobilise on any way, shape or form. I think it's been tremendously disorienting. But then we see when people are given a chance to make a decision on issues like, for example, same-sex marriage or here in Victoria recently where we had the Liberals uh, campaigning heavily on a racialised crime panic, you know, that people reject those politics and, you know, go for a more progressive politics. But, yeah, I wonder how you see, you know, the, the kind of... Um, 
emergence of Trump and Nigel Farage and, you know, these other kind of populist right-wing leaders uh, in that context, you know, it really makes me think, you know, when I was reading about delegated politics turning into smug politics, I just couldn't help but think of Clinton's remarks about the basket of deplorables, you know, when Trump was, to my mind, highlighting some economic uh, uh, injustices and concerns that much of middle America had after years of neoliberalism and, you know, a, a terrible casino capitalist project that's delivering awful outcomes for, for many people in the States and elsewhere. Yeah, so I wonder whether you could touch on, you know, this this turn, you know, perhaps the left was painting the masses as uh, traditionally, you know, just essentially conservative and essentially bigoted. That may not be the case, but we are now seeing this emergence of a, of a proto-fascist, you know, highly bigoted, highly racist uh, ideas coming from Trump and others across the Western world. Yes, it's a, it's a really interesting point, and in some ways it was a kind of um, uh, embryo of this this project. How you have this bizarre situation where someone like Donald Trump, whose whole public persona mm. was based on conspicuous consumption, I mean, that was his shtick, mm. I am a billionaire, you know, I have more money than you will ever see, was somehow managed to portray himself as a man of the people and an anti-elitist. I mean, that is fucking bonkers. Mm. So how, how, how did this... How did this happen? And I think you're right. I think the the um, abandonment by the left of any notion that the people themselves might have any agency in changing the world, and the shift of the eventual shift of that into a, a notion that said the people themselves are the problem, mm. and the people need to be policed and controlled because if they're not, then they'll fuck everything up. Um, opened the way for. I mean, it wasn't the whole story, but it was certainly part uh, of the process by which various right-wing demagogues were able to say, look, the left hates ordinary people. We love ordinary people. You know, we are the, you know, the real represent, representatives of, you know, uh, of, of the working class in, 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 in America or Australia. And I should just clarify on that. I, like, there are, there's another version of the argument that I'm putting forward in the book, which, which, which says, look, the problem is that um, the left spends too much time trying to police the masses for racism and sexism or whatever. Instead, it should just overlook racism and sexism in order to be able to mobilise the masses. That's not the argument that I'm making. I'm not trying to suggest that there is no such thing as racism or sexism or transphobia amongst the working class. Obviously, that's a stupid idea. Obviously, these ideas do exist, and obviously, they will, you know, they are part and parcel of these demagogic um, populists that you've spoken about. But I guess what I'm trying to say is, rather than just, you know, accepting that ordinary people are innately backward, we need to move to a kind of project where we understand that ordinary people can be won from these ideas and that, in fact, you know, have the potential to change, or work, to change the world to overcome racism and sexism, which is a quite different um, perspective. And I think if we don't do that, if we don't put ordinary people at the centre of our politics, we certainly leave space for others to do it with very sinister results. As you say, we've seen that in America and we've seen it all across Europe. Do you think, you know, I think that some of the issue as well stems not not necessarily from the right, but with the kind of liberal um, politics that are so prevalent in 
you know, across the world. And, you know, I remember some of the things that what you're just saying then kind of remind me of, you know, the environmental movement as well. And a lot of the kind of more liberal politicians and liberal thinkers have put the onus back on working class people to make a difference for the environment and not on corporations, not on government necessarily. Yeah, Do you well, think that fits that, into that kind of category as well? Yeah, no, totally. I mean, you, you see that in France, don't you, where, uh, you know, um, the, uh, the, the, mo- the motivating spark, not, obviously not the cause, but the initial impetus uh, of the mass protest in France was the imposition of a, um, a fuel tax that was justified on an environmental kind of basis. And the whole tenor of that kind of neoliberal environmentalism is that, you know, Ordinary people need to change their behaviour if, if we're going to save um, the planet. That it's the fault of Joe Sixpack that the, the planet is in the the, the the mess that it's in. And you can see there are some quite extreme um, versions of that floating around the environmental movement. People flirting with the notion that because, say, climate change is such a planetary disaster, which clearly it is, therefore we need to abandon democracy we need to, you know, establish some kind of authoritarian regime so we can push through climate change measures to save the environment. Now, I would suggest that this is an absolutely disastrous approach, one that's not going to save the planet, but in fact is going to, again, open up space for kind of demagogic forces, you know, to... um to present environmentalism as a kind of elite project that has counterposed the interests of ordinary people, which, again, when you think about it, is, is bizarre. Everyone knows that those who are going to suffer most as the planet heats up are the very poorest, both the poorest countries, but the poorest people in those countries. And so the presentation of environmentalism as a movement on behalf of the rich, which is what, you know, the right-wing demagogues do, is quite strange and it's indicative of a real failure on the part of the left and the environmental movement that this can get any traction at all. I want to, yeah, I think that that kind of point about the language is really interesting as well. And I feel like the, um, you know, it's been presented in this way where the left, you know, really are liberal ideas, but they're being presented as like a far left. And yet the right, are, you know, we're seeing more and more mainstream of like far right ideas presented as like kind of a soft right ideology and yet you know where are the kind of revolutionary ideas that are being I guess lost in that kind of um, dichotomy of just left and right without the kind of nuance of you know being anti-capitalist and and trying to change the world in in that kind of system sort of way yes um, I'm losing the the signal a little bit can you still hear me yeah yeah Yeah, cool yeah 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 I mean um when I was uh reading about the direct politics of the 60s and the 70s, one of the things that jumped out at me is the um, centrality of the term liberation to those politics. And it's just a word you do not hear anymore. You know, mm. that the early women's movement was the women's liberation movement, you know, mm. the gay liberation movement, the black liberation movement. You know, um, there's, there's a discourse about liberation for um, disabled people and, and so on and so forth. And this, this, this notion that... Um, that the movements have to fundamentally change the world, Um, you know, not just we have to change our own individual behaviour, but we have to change this world as a whole, but also a notion that we can win. I mean, that's implicit in the whole notion of liberation, that there is a state at which, you know, 
we will be able to achieve these demands. We will be able to, you know, achieve liberation for um, oppressed people in a way that just nobody talks about today. And I think that, I mean, it's obviously an issue um, when we talk about environmentalism simply because, I don't think I say this in the book somewhere, that the, the challenge facing the planet now and the scale of the... You know, the, the devastation that's been wrought by capitalism is so severe that any kind of piecemeal project to combat climate change just doesn't seem convincing to people. I mean, if you tell people, like, we can save the planet by putting out your, you know, recycling your glass bottles or by turning off your light bulbs, I mean, maybe 20, 30 years ago that might have seemed credible, but nobody believes it now. Mm. And, it, again, it opens up space for... For the, for the right-wing demagogues to say, look, climate change isn't serious, it's just a thing that the United Nations and the inner city elites are, are trying to push. I mean, they don't even believe it themselves. Look, they're trying to say that turning off your lights is going to save the planet. Clearly it's not. And I think if we are to have any credibility, um, when we're talking about climate change, we have to program, because if we don't, it just seems like, you know, we're not taking it seriously. I mean, uh, uh, one of the analogies, and it's not a perfect analogy, but it, 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 it brings, it draws out some of this is, is, you know, to think about climate change in terms of a, a disaster like a war where, you know, in, in the Second World War, for instance, most of the belligerent countries said we are facing a national emergency. We need to restructure the entire economy and every aspect of our social lives in order to win this struggle. Well, Unless we're putting forward something of that scale in terms of climate change, it just doesn't seem serious to people. Jeff, you were talking uh, earlier about the need to create unity across uh, across classes and across people, and you spoke about the kind of, um, I guess, the debt that the left owes towards uh, things like the women's liberation movement, the gay liberation movement, the black liberation movement. But you also tell a lot of stories in the book about the way identity politics has shifted in the modern era. Uh, and how it's kind of created a splintering of what used to be uh, a union of people. Uh, you tell a story about a group of campus activists in Canada who are organising to get uh, yoga classes banned, you know, because of the idea of cultural appropriation. And they get a, a very strange uh, message of support, or well, not that strange message of support, from prominent neo-Nazi Richard Spencer. So it's kind of the book kind of details some of the unexpected outcomes of identity politics, such as this splintering of unity across race and gender and sexuality, and and as you've said, an increasingly policed left, self-policed left. How do you think identity politics can be best used by the left moving forward? Oh, <laughs> another big question. Okay, so there's nothing wrong with left-wingers talking about identity. There's nothing wrong with talking about the need to change languages or, or culture. And these things have always been a part of every struggle. You know, you can... Um, I can't remember whether they ended up putting this in the book or, or, or not, but um, there's a great account of uh, British travellers coming to France after the French Revolution and describing how much the culture has shifted after the revolution, that people are dressing in certain ways and they've changed the language to use, you know, various revolutionary phrases and, you know, all the cultural mores have, have, have changed in a way that, you know, Today it almost sounds like they're talking about, you know, they, they almost sound like right-wingers complaining about cultural Marxism. 
you know, so any massive, any major social change necessarily changes the way people think about themselves and their sexuality and their um, identity. And so, um, after all, if you are going to fight for your own um, rights against systematic oppression, you have to have an understanding of yourself as the kind of person who can do that, if you see what I mean. To not think about yourself as merely someone who suffers, but also to think about yourself as someone who has kind of agency. So in, in, in that sense, identity is always part of kind of radical politics. It's just that I think what we've seen is a shift from the notion that politics gives rise to particular forms of identity to a, to a perspective that sees identity giving, for, giving rise to particular forms of politics. And it's a quite different way of thinking about it. So if you go back to, say, the Stonewall riots and the beginnings of, of gay liberation, the riots of um, ordinary people um, at a gay nightclub in, in New York fighting back against the cops to, to the, the notion of gay liberation and led to a different kind of identity for particularly for homosexual men at, 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 at the states where they saw themselves as kind of you know powerful agents of change but the key point was this struggle that was seen by the people who were engaging in it as part of um, a broader left-wing project analogous to um, the struggle against the Vietnam War or the struggle for for women for women's rights, that was the thing that gave rise to the identity, not the other way around. Whereas today, the way that campus identity politics in particular is presented is that people's, um, people's day-to-day experiences shape a certain identity, then anyone who has that identity um, can be necessarily expected to take particular political positions. And in a funny kind of way, it ends up with a, almost a, a strange kind of essentialism where you say, because you're black, you will have these opinions. Because you are gay, you will have these opinions, or whatever. And it's that sort of essentialism that makes it a very attractive um, formulation for the right. So you mentioned the case of the argument about cultural appropriation and yoga. Well, the difficulty about the term cultural appropriation is it suggests that particular cultures belong to particular people, only those people have a right to access that particular culture, and this is something that the left should um, police. Well, of course, you only need to make a very slight twist to that argument, and it becomes an argument that's very familiar to the far right, which says, like, white people have a certain culture, and black people have a certain culture. Black people should stick to their culture. White people should stick to white to to, to, to white culture. And any attempts to, you know, um, to, to 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 break down that barrier is a bad thing in and of itself. And you you know, like you only have to think back to say the sort of political struggles against fascism in the twenties and the thirties to to really draw out the implications of that. Because of course, in that in those days, the left slogans were primarily internationalism cosmopolitanism, mm. um, cultural mingling, mm. um, you know, the, whereas it was the right, the far right, and particularly the fascist right, that decried mongrelization of cultures, that said that, um, you know, national cultures were, for, were the foundation of national identity and, and so on and so forth. So I, I think that um, 
some of these ideas associated with identity politics can have quite um, nasty ramifications. And I think one of the things that sort of defines the alt-right as opposed to you know, the traditional far-right is that they grasp um, the reactionary elements of identity politics and you know, begin to weaponise them against the left. So we saw people like Milo Yiannopoulos um, during his tours. The thing that he would say over and over again is, um, well, you know, I'm a gay man and... You know, um, because of that, um, I'm I'm not a right winger, but I'm a you know truth teller for um, oppressed people in, in a way that was sort of taking the identity politics of the left and turning it back against the left. And again, that's a very long response to what was initially quite a short question. But <laughs> anyway. No, it was a great great response. Jeff. Thank you, Jeff. Um, I guess you know you mentioned there, like I guess you know the rise of last time of the the big rise of the of the far right in the twenties and thirties. But one of the things that you know was also um, you, you mentioned there about the internationalism. Well, one of the things there obviously was the you know strength of international organisations, the communist parties and socialist parties around the world. We don't have that at the moment. I mean, we are seeing, I guess you know, every now and then kind of a rise in um, social movements, but you know they're quite different to the way that I guess those kind of movements were fought. There's, you know, a very kind of deliberate lack of, of leadership in that from traditional sense, which, you know, I think is fine. But it, I guess I wonder the, the ongoing kind of organisation of those groups and, you know, the, how that kind of resistance may form in the coming years. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I don't have any crystal ball for these kind of things that end. I want to be a little bit careful too because like this is an argument you know primarily about the cultural wars and about ideas on the left and, and the right and while I think these things are important in terms of the struggle I, I, I don't want to make them sound like they're, they're the sort of defining things if you, in a way it's not like I'm not trying to suggest that if the left gets the cultural wars right everything else will fall into in, in, into place so mm. the decomposition of the trade unions is obviously um, a far more significant phenomenon in some ways of the things that I'm, I'm talking about and while it has, you know, related causes in some respects, it's, it's a phenomenon in, in, in its own right. But nevertheless, I, I, I think that um, the point you make, the, the destruction of, you know, the, the erosion of traditional left-wing um, organisations has a massive effect, effect on the kinds of things that we are talking about. If, as I said, um, politics gives rise to identity. Well, there was a time when the organisations of the left gave rise to a kind of political identity that was based on solidarity and collectivity and a whole series of, you know, um, ideas and themes. And in many ways that has kind of disappeared now. It's very rare to find, you know, somebody who's active in a trade union that has regular, you know, delegates meetings, for instance the kind of places where in the past people would learn about politics and learn about you know, um, solidarity and collective operating and those sorts of things don't happen anymore. In fact, um, in this debate about you know, the nature of democracy and participatory versus representative democracy, I mean, it struck me when I was researching that that most people these days have almost no experience of democracy. You know, there once was a time when it would have been quite normal to be, say, I don't know, to attend a Labor Party branch meeting and, you know, to vote on a, on a particular motion or to 
to attend a trade union conference or even to belong to a cooperative in your neighbourhood or in your building or a sporting club where things were, you know, voted on, almost all of those sorts of organisations have dissolved now or have become hollowed out to the point that they no longer function, which means that we just don't have that experience of democratically engaging um, with each other. As to how exactly that will be rebuilt, well, in some ways that's the million-dollar question, isn't it? I feel like in some ways if we knew the answer to that, we wouldn't be talking about it, we'd be doing it. Mm. But I do, you know, and I do think we need to have a sense of scale uh, as to what is possible from where we are at at the moment, that there's no magic key that is going to unlock new mass organisations of... Of the left, I suppose it's you know it's about doing the things that we can and they're here and and, and now. But if this book makes any contribution to that, I, I suppose it would be the argument along the lines of you know in the rebuilding of you know the the institutions of the left, um, re-embracing the ideas of um, you know bottom down, so bottom bottom down is what I mean, um, bottom up organising, participatory democracy. Um, you know, solidarity, these are the notions on which um, that the kind of left that we want um, should be built, I guess, is the argument that I'm trying to make. But that, that doesn't offer a sort of blueprint as to how it might be done, if you see what I mean. Mm-hmm. Jeff, thanks heaps for taking some time out uh, at this busy time of year. Uh, it's been really nice to chat. Uh, thanks for the book. It was a good read. And uh, have a good new year. You too. Thank you so much for the chance to talk on your show. Cheers. And that's all we've got time for this morning. Thanks for tuning in. Stay tuned to 3CR right over summer as we bring you some more important conversations we had during 2018. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.